How many of you either saw the movie or read the book, The Martian? Okay, I I haven't seen the movie yet, but I enjoyed the book. It is set in the near future, and it is about a manned mission to Mars that goes terribly wrong. The the crew of astronauts get caught in this terrible dust storm, and they are forced to abandon their mission and evacuate the planet. Uh, Unfortunately, not everyone makes it safely back to the spaceship. One of the crew, Mark Watney, who is played by Matt Damon in the movie, is presumed dead and left behind. But what the crew doesn't realize is that Watney actually survives the storm, and now he is stranded, completely alone, the only human being on the planet Mars. And all of this, this happens in the opening pages of the book, and the rest of the story is about Watney figuring out how he's going to survive. How's he going to find food and water? How's he going to keep warm? Is there a way to communicate with Earth? Is it even possible that he might get back home? At one point in his adventure, he needs to uh, travel across a, a pretty big distance. He's going to go in his rover vehicle, and he, he's got to figure out how to navigate across this unknown, dangerous terrain. And he's got a, a basic map, but he's been cut off from all other satellites and navigation equipment, so he can't really figure out his own location on the map. He can't keep track of where he is, and he could easily get lost and never found. So what he does to solve this problem is he builds a sextant. A sextant, it's a tool that has been used by sailors on Earth for centuries to determine their location at sea. Uh, At sea, you don't have a lot of landmarks, and so in order to figure out exactly where you are, uh, the only thing that you've got to work with are the stars. And so you use a sextant to locate yourself based on where the stars are. And so a basic one of these is not that hard to build, and so that's what Watney does uh, to navigate across Mars. And in the book, Watney remarks at just how strange it is to actually be on another planet wearing a state-of-the-art spacesuit surrounded by advanced technology, and it turns out that the most reliable piece of equipment for navigating is this ancient piece of technology. I, I don't know about you, but I have had the same strange feeling when reading the Bible. It, it is so strange to me that the best way to navigate this uncharted, dangerous, uh, sometimes confusing modern world is actually this ancient book. What is it about this book that is so powerful? Over the last month, we have been studying the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and we have been talking about how when we surrender to Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of us and begins to work in us and through us. And what we're going to be asking today is, how is it that the Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us? How does he help us navigate through life? And the simple answer to that question is, he uses the Bible. But, but how exactly does that work? We're going to talk about three steps in a process that the Spirit uses to apply the Bible to our life so that it can guide us in every circumstance. The first step is this. The Spirit inspired the Bible. The Spirit inspired the Bible. To see this, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. Uh, Peter is one of the last books of the Bible, so start at the back of the book if you are uh, looking to find it. Let me give you a little background here as you, you look for that. Second uh, Peter is written at the end of Peter's life, and he is writing to a church, and there's kind of a, a challenge that's uh, on the horizon. Uh, Peter is getting old, and he knows he's about to die soon. And also, some of the other apostles have died, and so the, the church is wondering, okay, uh, we, we have people come along all the time, and they, they teach things, and sometimes they're different than what the apostles said, or sometimes we're not sure if they're true or they're false. 
And whenever we've had that problem, we've always turned to the apostles because they were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. They heard what he taught. They saw what he did. And they could always clarify, is this true or is this false for us? But when they die, they're not going to be around to do that. So how are we going to sort things out? So Peter is writing this letter in part to address a particular false teaching, but he's also trying to give the bigger picture of here's what to do to sort out true and false. And here's what he says in verse 19. We have the prophetic message. Now, I want to clarify, the prophetic message in this passage specifically is a reference to the Old Testament, uh, but also the writings of the New Testament. We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to notice is Peter describes the Bible as completely reliable. The Bible is completely true and without error. It has no uh, errors from start to finish, from the big picture to the minor details. What you read in this book, you can count on. It's completely reliable. You can look around at everything else that you hear in life, and you might say, oh, that doesn't seem right, or that's not the whole truth, or or, that's got a lot of spin in it. But when you read this, you can say, this is true. I can count on it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't misinterpret Scripture. We can misunderstand what we read in the Bible. Just because you think that's what it says doesn't mean that is what it says. But just because we can be wrong about what it means doesn't mean that it's false. Uh, If we misinterpret something, that should make us question ourselves, not question the Bible. Because what's in the Bible is completely reliable. Now, that is a a pretty bold claim, wouldn't you say? Uh, Why would Peter say something like that? Well, it's because he knows where the Bible came from. Look again at verse 21. He says, The prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's something really important to understand about the Bible. It is not a book. It looks like a book. We call it a book. I've already called it a book a few times in this service. But it is not a book. It is a library. It consists of 66 different documents. Some are histories, some are letters, some are poetry, some are short stories. There's legal documents. It was written by dozens of different authors over the course of 1,500 years. These are the words of kings and shepherds and priests and fishermen and tax collectors and doctors. And when you dig into these documents, you, you see all sorts of different personalities, different styles. They reflect the different cultures and the times and the places where they were written. These are incredibly human documents, human fingerprints all over them. But here's what's going on behind the scenes when these documents were written. When these authors wrote, the Spirit of God was working through them, carrying them along to make sure that what God wanted in this book was what got there. Now, you you shouldn't imagine this the wrong way. You shouldn't imagine the the authors of Scripture kind of like going into a trance and then sort of speaking without knowing what they're saying or their, their hand kind of moving on their own, not really realize what they're writing. And and except in a few very rare cases when the Bible tells us explicitly that this happened, they didn't have the words just sort of dictated into their ears and just sort of wrote down what they heard. They were still fully engaged human beings with all their faculties intact as they wrote. But as they did this, God was working through their actions. Uh, Two parallel things happening at the same time, fully human writing and fully divine writing all at once. How can both be true? Uh, The Taj Mahal, one of the most famous and beautiful buildings in the entire world. It was commissioned by the Indian emperor to be a tomb for his wife. 
And it was built by the architect Ustad Ahmad Lahari. It took him over 19 years to build, and it's one of the wonders of the world. But of course, Lahari didn't lay a single stone in the Taj Mahal. Over 20,000 workers and craftsmen were recruited from across northern India, and it was their hands that placed every tile, carved every sculpture, drew every stroke of calligraphy on the walls. And yet the building is exactly what Lahari intended it to be. The same thing is true about the inspiration of the Bible. God is like the architect. He's the designer. He oversaw the writing of Scripture to ensure that it says what he wants. But he used human words and human actions to bring it about. It's a fully human book and a fully divine book at the same time. Now, if you ask me, that makes the Bible so wonderful and so weird at the same time. This book is a wonder. It is amazing to know that these are actually God's words, that that there's nothing in here that's fluff. There's nothing missing that should be in there. If you want to know exactly what God has to say to the world, all you have to do is open up this book and read what God has said. It is a gift. It is an amazing grace that God has said, here, I'm going to speak to you. But when you actually open up and you read it, it's really strange, isn't it? I mean, God gave himself 1,500 pages, which is not a lot of pages if you're an all-knowing being trying to communicate what you think. So you think, why why did he spend some of his pages on this stuff? You know, uh, food laws, uh, a list of names, erotic poetry, but you didn't know there was erotic poetry in the Bible, song lyrics, obscure military history, all all sorts of stuff. I mean, if if you'd asked me, okay, if God's going to write a book, what's that book going to be like? I don't know what I'd tell you, but I certainly wouldn't describe this. Okay, let's have a moment of honesty here. I know this is church, but how many of you think the Bible is strange sometimes? You ever open up and be like, what is going on? Okay, me too. I've been studying this book every day for decades, and still, on a regular basis, I am surprised and confounded and confused and challenged by what's going on in it. Now, I say all of this not to be discouraging. The, the opposite, in fact. I think that the weirdness of the Bible is one of the most appealing things about it. One of my favorite musical albums of all time is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by the band Wilco. Uh, When people uh, hear that I like this album, sometimes they'll go listen to it, and I am never surprised when they come back and say, I didn't like it. It's kind of an acquired taste. It's it's a weird album full of dissonance and cryptic lyrics, and the first time you listen to it, you're like, I'm not really sure what to make of this. And that's why when Wilco actually recorded the album in 2001, the record company refused to release it. Uh, They they said, no one's going to buy this album, and so they dropped the band from the label. Uh, Eventually, they they found another label, and the album was released in 2002. It went out to uh, sell uh, half a million copies and reached number 16 on the charts. Uh, Ten years later, this is what the editor of Rolling Stone had to say about the album. He says, there's pretty stuff in there. There's hard stuff in there. There's mystery, and there's really sweet tunes, and there's an abrasion in there as well, but it's all there, and you really have to kind of sit with it. You have to allow yourself the time to get something out of it. I think that's what the Bible is like. The Bible is a complex, rich collection of writings, and the Spirit has thrown it all in there, the pretty stuff, the hard stuff, the mystery, the abrasion, and it's all there, and to get it, you really got to sit with it. You got to give it the time that it deserves. I think that's a good thing. 
How many of you like to see Christopher Nolan films like Interstellar, Inception, The Prestige, okay? Some people love these movies. They flock to them and they go to these movies not because they're looking for a way to sort of, you know, check their mind at the door. They're, they're coming to think. They're coming to engage because you got to put all the pieces together of what's going on. And people actually go to his movies and they think, I'm, I'm probably going to have to rewatch this. I'm going to have to see it a couple of times to start to get what's going on. That's part of the fun of these movies, Sometimes when we approach the Bible, we, we hope that it's going to be easy, that it's just going to be obvious what, what's going on, and we feel frustrated when we've got, got to do some work. But what would happen if we approached the Bible as if it was a work of art by the most brilliant and creative mind in all of existence? Because that's exactly what it is. The Bible says the Spirit is like wind. He blows wherever He wants. He cannot be predicted or controlled. And, and so, of course, the book that He wrote, it's going to be wild and surprising, and of course, the first time you read it, you're not, you're not going to get all of it. It's going to take a lifetime to draw out the riches of this book. And even then, we're not going to get to the end of it. This is a God-breathed book. It is completely reliable and completely unexpected. And that's good. And it's also why we should do what Peter says and pay attention to it. Uh, practically speaking, we've gotta, it means we've got to spend regular time in Scripture. Uh, first and foremost, it means doing what you're doing right now participating in weekly services where you are being taught the Bible uh, from someone. It also means getting together in groups of people to, to study the Bible, to apply it, to discuss it. That's why we're so big on community groups here. But it also means setting aside regular time on a daily basis to engage with the Bible. And I don't just mean, you know, a passing glance at it, an inspirational quote for the morning or something like that, but giving God's word your full attention. And if that isn't part of your life already, you're going to have to figure out a plan for that. It's not going to work if you walk out of here and you say, oh, that'd be great. I should, I should read the Bible more sometime. You might do that for a little bit. You might remember it this afternoon, but it's not going to stick with you. You're going to need to plan specifically when and where and how you're going to do that. Uh, people who study uh, habits and, and, and how to change habits, they say the very best way to add a new habit is to link it with a habit you already have. So you look in your life, where do I have a, a normal routine that always happens? And you try to add that new habit into the routine. So what I tell people is, is, if you want to start reading the Bible, think of something you do. If you exercise every morning, uh, throw your Bible in your gym bag. Uh, when you uh, go to your workout, you know, after you do, you know, run on the treadmill, uh, lift some weights, make it your final set of your workout. Read a chapter of the Bible. Or make it part of your lunch routine or your breakfast routine. Uh, Michelle and I, it's, it's part of our bedtime routine. Uh, find a way to pay attention to the Bible every single day. Do you have that? Let's look at the second step in how the Spirit uses the Bible in our lives. Spirit not only inspired the Bible, but also illuminates the Bible. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to learn more about this. Corinthians is in the New Testament, so if you're still in 2 Peter, just turn a little bit to the left to find it. I'm going to read a few verses here, so let me give you uh, some context of what's going on. The, the author of this letter is Paul, and he's writing to a church in a Greek city in Corinth. And, and in Greek society, uh, public speakers and teachers were like rock stars, which if you ask me is the way it's supposed to be. And, and so what the, the Corinthians were hoping, they, they know that in that society, if you are associated with a teacher or a speaker who is really well regarded in society, that's a way to get some prestige and honor. So if you, you support them, if you're their patron, uh, then if they're well liked, you'll be well liked. And, and so they're looking at Paul, this church looking at Paul and saying, hey, maybe we can get some glory from, from people being impressed with him. But there's a problem. Uh, first of all, Paul is not that impressive of a public speaker, at least by Greek standards. But also his message is really kind of off-putting. 
He's saying you should be worshiping this uh, convicted criminal who is executed on a cross. And people hear that and they say, that, 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 that's really weird and kind of gross. Like, I, that's, uh, we're not into that message. And, and so the Corinthians are saying to Paul, come on, throw us a bone. Like, do something to help us have a little bit more honor uh, among our friends. And Paul is writing back to say, look, here are the reasons why I have to keep preaching about the cross, but also why some people don't get it. Let's pick it up in verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Now, Paul here is describing what we just talked about in Second Peter, the, the process of inspiration. But then he goes on to say, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. What Paul is talking about here is the process of illumination. And he describes three aspects of the process. Uh, First, in verse 14, Paul says that without the Spirit, people don't accept the things that come from the Spirit. Uh, Michelle and I, we have lived in our home for about five years, but still probably once a week, we get mail that is addressed to the previous owners of the home. So it might be an ad, it might be a magazine. Sometimes it's a bill or a notice of an unpaid bill, which is kind of a serious deal. But we get that. If it was addressed to us, we would, you know, suddenly be thrown into a panic. We say, oh no, we missed a bill. We got to do something about it. Uh, But because it's not, we just say return to sender and we put it back in the box and hope that people get it eventually. Uh, This is how a lot of people experience the Bible. They hear the Bible and they say, "Uh, no, that's, that's not really talking to me. They might say, well, that might be good for you if you like that, but I I just don't buy it. I just don't get it. It it doesn't seem to be addressed to them, so they reject it. But when the Spirit illuminates the Bible, it changes that, and we start to accept it. Uh, I spend a lot of time at playgrounds watching children, which sounds a lot creepier when I say it out loud than when I wrote it in my notes. Um, I've got two daughters, and so on uh, nice days like this, our family is often at a park, and so are tons of other families. And if you've been at a park with a bunch of kids, you know that there is always some kid uh, who, who is, is shouting out their mother's name, Mommy, 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 or they're like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Every woman at the park is named Mom, you know? And so the, you, when you're there, you're thinking, uh, you, you just sort of tune out a lot of this stuff, you know? You hear, you hear the kids calling for their parents, and you just sort of tune it out. But when your kid says, Dad, Mom, you oh, suddenly turn because you know that voice, and you know it's addressed to you, and you've got to respond to it. This is what the Spirit does. In the midst of the clatter and the clutter of the world, the Bible gets our attention. Uh, We hear the Spirit-taught words of Scripture, and they're not just any other words floating out there. They are words spoken to us. It's not somebody else's problem. We've got to respond to what this says. We accept it because it's addressed to us. Again, in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, without the Spirit, people consider what the Bible says foolishness. Uh, this reaction comes out differently in different cultures. In our culture, a lot of people reject the Bible because they say it's not scientific, it doesn't line up with, with science, or they say it's morally backwards, it's, it's full of violence, it inspires bigotry, it's a straitjacket, you know, it robs people of freedom to really enjoy life. They, they hear the Bible and it just it doesn't make sense. It feels dumb, it feels like foolishness. So it's not just that they won't accept it, they also just think it's, it's not a good idea. But when the the Spirit illuminates the Bible, it it makes it so that you not only accept it, but you want to hear what it says. You want it. You take a second look at the Bible and you say, there's more here to this than I thought. 
The Spirit illuminates the Scripture, and it strikes you as insightful and as wise. It's more like the words of a trusted mentor, and you're glad to listen to it. Illumination means not only do we accept the Bible and as addressed to us, not only do we hear the Bible as wisdom, but we also begin to get it. We start to understand it. Verse 14 says that those without the Spirit cannot understand the Bible. Now, one of the things that happens when the Spirit illuminates the Bible is that things that were unclear before or were confusing, they start to make sense. They start to fit together. We, we, we notice details we didn't see before. We make connections and gain insight that we otherwise you know, would have just been confused by. But, but it's more than just understanding the words and understanding the meaning of what's written there. I mean, in some respects, even non-Christians can get that far. Uh, it, it's not uncommon for me to pull a commentary off my shelf that was written by someone who, who isn't a follower of Christ, and they've got insights and understanding to, to what the words actually mean, even though they don't believe them. What this verse is saying is, is deeper than that. It's, it's saying that this, it can make sense in your mind, but you don't get it here in your heart, in your gut. You, you get it, but you don't get it. Another way of saying this is you understand it from the outside, but not the inside. One time I took a class in, in college, and uh, it was called The Historical Geography of Israel, which might sound a little dry, but it was actually a very, very interesting class. The way it worked is we would all bring these very detailed maps of Israel, and the professor each day would say, okay, well, we're going to find this location. We're going to find the, the Sea of Galilee, and we'd all find it on the map. And then we would go through the, the Bible, and we would go through history, and we would mark all the significant events that happened in that location. So we'd mark these prophets and the kings, and Jesus did this there, and so on and so forth. But what made it really, really interesting was that the professor was not just an expert in the Old Testament and archaeology. He grew up in Jerusalem. And Israel isn't that big of a country, so he had basically been to all the locations we were talking about. And so he would be telling us stories. He'd be saying, talking about this battle in Joshua or something. And then he'd pause and say, oh, and if you're ever in that town, there's this shop that's, that's over here and it has this incredible falafel. Make sure you go there. Or he'd say, oh, you know, one time I was there and there, there, there's this military checkpoint at this spot. And I, I was a boy and I was so nervous when we got stopped at this place. But then the, the soldier let me try on his helmet and sit in the tank. And, you know, and he's telling all of these stories and describing the scene from memory, not just from scholarship. There are ways that you can, you can know a place by studying the map, but you can understand it even deeper by being a local, by living there. That's how it is with Scripture. You don't just get it, you get it. Get it? And that's somebody else's gimmick. Okay, never mind. Let's look at the third step in how the Spirit uses the Bible to teach us. The Spirit not only inspired the Bible, illuminates the Bible, the Spirit also applies the Bible. To see this, let's turn to a final passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, John is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, and we're going to pick things up in chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, what's going on here is Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples. He knows he's going to die the very next day, and he's told them, I I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised in a few days, but then after that, I'm going back to the Father. And the disciples are, are nervous because of this. They're, they're unsettled because they know uh, they've got a mission to carry out that Jesus has given them, and they're going to be facing a lot of hostility. So they're wondering, how are we going to pull this off? How are we going to do this? So for about five chapters, Jesus is describing, here's how it's going to go. And here's one of the really important things he says. Verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Uh, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit here as the advocate. 
Now, that's kind of a, a tricky word. If you read it in different translations of the Bible, it might be translated anything uh, such as counselor or comforter, helper, intercessor. Uh, sometimes they don't even translate it into English. They just leave the, the Greek word there, paraclete. Uh, at the most basic level, the idea of a paraclete is someone who comes alongside someone. It's, it's what you do when uh, someone's having a problem. You, you, you grab them by the, the arm and you say, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to support you through this. But it also has a more technical term. In a court setting in those days, a paraclete was someone's attorney. It was their lawyer. And so when you read the word counselor here, you shouldn't think like camp counselor or marriage counselor. You should think legal counselor. Or when you read the word advocate, you should think something like judge advocate general, the lawyers in a military court. The Holy Spirit is an attorney. And the job of an attorney is to apply the law to different situations. They're experts in the written code, uh, and then they apply the written code to the situations, and they interpret the situation in light of it. That, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And the way he does this in our life is very simple. Verse 26 says he will remind you of everything that Jesus said. The, the Spirit doesn't just put the words in the Bible. He doesn't just make sense of them when you're reading it. In situations where you don't even have a Bible on you, he brings those things you have learned to mind so that you can apply them right where you're at. And as a lawyer, as our attorney, there are three ways that the Holy Spirit might apply the law to the situation. He can prosecute, he can defend, and he can advise. Uh, the job of a prosecuting lawyer is to argue that we're in the wrong with regard to the law. And that, that is our situation. You and I, were sinners. We do things contrary to God's word. And when that happens, it's the Holy Spirit's job to point it out. And, and sometimes, if you've ever been in... Uh, Religious circles, sometimes the people will use the word conviction. I feel convicted about this, or I was convicted by that. Uh, that is just another term that comes from this legal setting. When, when someone is found to be guilty, they are convicted. Uh, John, uh, in chapter 16, says this explicitly. Jesus says this in chapter 16. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The most important time when this happens in a person's life is when they come to faith in Jesus. Uh, one of the things that happens then is you realize, oh my, I, I am not one of the good guys. I, I thought that I was all right, but it turns out that I, I'm on the wrong side here. And it's what drives you to, to, to run to Jesus and plead for mercy because you know if you find yourself standing before the judge, you, you're a goner, you're guilty. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But even after you come to faith in Jesus, this continues. The Spirit draws your attention to ways that you've violated God's law or ways that you're about to violate God's law. So it might happen like this. You're, you're home alone and you're flipping on the TV and you're about to turn to a channel and you know, if I watch this, I'm probably gonna see something I shouldn't. Or you're opening up your web browser and you're about to go look for some porn and, and, and suddenly in your mind, 1 Corinthians 6 pops up, flee from sexual immorality. Or maybe the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, where he says, if you lust after someone, it is as if you are committing adultery in your heart. And it warns you and prevents you. You say, you're about to cross that line. Or maybe you've already done that, and those verses make you say, oh my, I need to repent. I need to seek forgiveness. Now, you hear this, and you probably think, that doesn't sound very pleasant, not very uplifting. It's kind of, kind of a drag, you know, as if the, the spirit were always laying on a guilt trip. But when you think about it, it it's actually a really good thing. I mean, if a company was breaking a law, violating some sort of code, it would be so much better for the company if their lawyer pointed it out before they were sued. Uh, sure, it might be inconvenient, they might have to change things, but it's really kind of merciful to catch things ahead of time rather than have to pay for it later. If you are breaking the law of the universe, it is merciful to have the Holy Spirit pointed out now rather than having to face the facts when you're before God on Judgment Day. So as your attorney, the Spirit points out when you're in the wrong. 
Now, thankfully, he can also take the other side of things. He can defend you from accusation. And you might feel accused from all sorts of different circumstances, all sorts of different reasons. Uh, it might be the people around you that make you feel accused. Like you, you've come to faith in Jesus and your family uh, thinks you're crazy. They don't, they don't get this thing that you're into. They, th they think you're nuts for doing it. Uh, and so actually coming to Jesus has actually made your relationship with your family much harder rather than better. And it's, it's really difficult. And you're just uh, frustrated and angry and you're wondering, am I doing something wrong here? And then the Spirit brings to mind the story from Mark chapter 3 where Jesus' uh, brothers and his mother come to him and they say, you're crazy, well, you, gotta, you gotta go. And you hear the words of Jesus. He says, those who do the will of my father, I call them brother and sister and mother. And you realize by following Jesus, you have gained a family, you are a part of his family, even when your family rejects you. You might feel accused by your circumstances, things that make you say, where is God? Maybe you've wanted a baby for a long time. And you've tried, and you've tried, and it isn't happening. And then you finally get pregnant, and you lose the baby. What's going on, you know? Where, where is God in that? Is he, am I doing something wrong? Am I, is he forgetting me? Is, like, is it my problem? What is happening here? And you're in the midst of this. And the Spirit brings to mind Psalm 34. The, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And you know that God is with you. It might be your own thoughts and feelings that accuse you. Every day you stand in front of the mirror and you hate what you see. And you can point out every part of your body and all the flaws that are there and everything that, that isn't right. And as you're doing this, the Spirit of God brings to mind Psalm 139. I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows this fully well. You feel alone. You feel abandoned. You feel too guilty to be forgiven, too shameful to be accepted. Surrounded by enemies, overwhelmed by trouble. That is the time when our advocate makes his case. The Spirit comes to us and says, look. Look at what I have written down. Look at what I say about you. L listen. Listen to the promises. They are true. I love you. I'm for you. Jesus has died for you. You have nothing to fear. Read it. See it. Let me defend you. When your accuser blasts you, the Spirit defends you. Third way he applies the law is he advises us. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I imagine a lawyer, I always uh, imagine them before a judge in a suit, you know, giving a speech, you know, arguing for their, their case. And I always hear bump, bump, you know, from law and order in my mind. It's very dramatic. Uh, but I actually have a friend who's an attorney, and he, he says, I, I'm never in court, and I, I don't usually even have to wear a suit. And so uh, what I do is I work for a company, and I advise them on legal matters, and I, because the law is more than just about right and wrong and, and guilty and innocent or, or crime and punishment. It, it's also about what's possible, uh, what, what's uh, advantageous, what, what has the law incentivized or made more difficult. And so uh, an attorney sorts that whole situation out. They look at your situation and say, all right, here, here are the options. Here's what I think is best for you. Here, here's what's going to work and what's not going to work. That, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, let's say that you are, uh, next weekend, you, some new neighbors move in. And you go out, they've got the truck out there, they're, they're, they're taking things out, and you start chatting it up with them, and you're getting to know them, and you realize they don't have any friends in this area. They, they don't have any family in this area. They've moved from out of state. And, and you're talking for a while, and then Matthew 25 comes into mind. In the words of Jesus, where he says, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. And all of a sudden, the scene changes. You're not just sizing up your neighbor, seeing if you're going to be friends or something. You realize this is an opportunity to welcome someone as if they were Jesus. 
And so your, your actions change. You say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw another burger on the grill. I'm going to invite them over. And we're going to see how we can share the love of God with this person. The Holy Spirit guides your actions and advises you in these things. Now, this is all really incredible. This is such a privilege. But here's a really important thing. If the Spirit is going to use the Bible in your life, it's got to be in you. It's got to be there to be used. Uh, you got to remember this, too, when you're doing regular Bible study. Sometimes people feel frustrated because they say, you know, I studied this passage or I heard this sermon, and it wasn't immediately relevant to my life. It was talking about something I'm not dealing with right now. He said, I guess that wasn't worth it. But actually it is, because what you're doing, even though you're looking for ways to respond right away, a lot of times when you study the Bible, you're storing things up for later. You don't know when you're going to need them, but you will need them. And the Holy Spirit will bring those things to mind when that happens. I have a friend who right now is, is dying. Um, I, and I mean like the next couple of days. I'm going to go see her this afternoon, and that might be the last time. And uh, she, she was telling me, it's been really, really hard, just brutal. And one of the amazing things about the situation, though, is even in the midst of suffering, that suffering has actually been something that has drawn her closer to God than she ever has been. And one of the things she told me, I was texting her about this sermon, and I was telling her that some of the points that I was going to share. And she said, that third point, that last thing about the Spirit applying the Bible, I know that's true. And she said, this is, let me read the text to her. She says, I know that point is true because I've remembered things just in the last few days I didn't even know I knew. And I text her back, I'm like, really, what, what about? She's like, uh, like verses, like Psalm 119.50. I didn't know what that was, so I like looked it up. And it says this. My comfort in suffering is this. Your promises preserve my life. So perfect. She said she woke up the other day and those words, my comfort in suffering is this. Your promises preserve my life were in her mind. She knew they were a verse from scripture. She didn't know where and that's how she, she looked for it and found that reference. She says this. She says, I don't even know how I know that verse. And I don't think I just remembered it on my own. She said, I can't read the Bible much right now. But I remember things that I could never just remember. And they help me get through the minutes and the hours and the eventual days. Maybe that sounds crazy, but I think it's God. And here, this is the really important part. I wish I would have studied the Bible more because it probably would have helped me now even more. There is so much wisdom in that. She is suffering, she's about to die, and her two thoughts are this. I am so, so thankful for Scripture. I'm so thankful that God's Word got in me. I'm so thankful that it's there because God is using it to give me strength, to give me comfort exactly when I need it. I didn't even know I was going to need it, but now I do. But she's also thinking, I wish I had more. I wish I had more. Will it be there for you? Is God's Word getting in you? We're about to sing a final song. As we do that, we're going to take our offering. The opening verse of the song goes like this. You give life. You are love. You bring light into the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. How does God do these things? He speaks. He speaks. In the same way that when he made the world, he spoke powerful, life-giving words to, words to cause everything to come into existence. He's also remaking the world in the same way. He is speaking his word into our lives. And when these words, these spirit-inspired words, work into our lives, they give hope. They heal broken hearts. They bring light into the darkness. And so with God's spirit moving in us, with God's breath in our lungs, let's respond to his word by pouring out our praise to him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful 
that you speak, that you are not silent, that we know what you think, what you want, what you've done. Spirit, we pray that you would move in us, that you would make the words of God come alive in us, that you'd be transforming us. And we pray that even now as we we pray, Spirit, that you would be moving in us so that we can respond appropriately to what you have spoken. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.